But we'll come to the time in our service now where we'll look at a passage of Scripture and talk about what it means, uh, why it matters to our lives, and how it applies right now. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 847. And when you found that, if you're able, would you stand together with me and we'll read God's Word together. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. read together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take this upon himself. Uh, He did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. He says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and ask God now to bless our time now as we come to his word. Living God, we come to you now to this reading and digging into your word, and we trust that you've got a purpose that you want to accomplish through this word to us today. We come with humility, with openness, as those who want to put ourselves under your word and not who sit over in judgment of it. We trust that you'll speak to us exactly what we need to hear whether that's an encouragement, whether an exhortation, whatever it is, would you come by your Spirit and empower your Word, God, to accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it out. Now, as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. When you're faced with something uh, scary in your life, something... uh, stressful, even just unfamiliar, what would you say is the one qualification that you look for in somebody else in order to say, I want to seek that person in order to get counsel, in order to get advice? What's the one qualification you often look for in that person? Just call it out if you have one. What do you look for in somebody? Wisdom. Okay. What else? Sorry? 
trustworthy. You've got an unfamiliar experience you're about to go through. What do you look for? Anything else? Thank you. I was hoping someone would say it. Experience. We need all those things. We want someone who's trustworthy. We want someone who's wise. We want someone who's, who's got experience. Someone who's, who's, who knows what it's like. So whether it's uh, riding that roller coaster for the very first time that we've never done, whether it's uh, applying for a class, we don't know what that professor is like, or even about having surgery, experience is one of those qualities that we look for in order to decide, okay, whose opinion am I going to trust? Who am I going to choose? Experience is often that quality that we look for. I mean, if I'm going to have brain surgery, I'm not going to go to that guy who spent the last five years studying medical journals and teaching in a classroom. As good as that is, I'm going to go to the guy who's performed hundreds and hundreds of successful brain surgeries. They're both experts in their field, but the guy with experience is the guy I trust more because he's been doing it all this time, right? So whatever it is, uh, uh, getting married, applying for a class, having a baby, you want someone who's been there. Someone who knows firsthand what they're talking about to counsel you, to give you advice, which, as you can probably guess, is why when we first found out that Sarah was pregnant, not once did she ever come to me and seek my advice or my counsel about what pregnancy and childbirth would be like. She never came to me, even after I had read what to expect when you're expecting. She still didn't ask me, hey, what do you think? What's it going to be like? There was a few times, actually, where I tried to say some things. I was like, you know, I read in this book that a lot of times women in pregnancy, and man, the room just went like, ooh. Women were looking at me like, no, oh, no, just shut up, shut up. <laughs> just be very quiet right now. And of course, the reason is I'm, I'm, I'm a man, right? I have never had, nor will I ever have, any experience in what it's like, what Sarah would and then did experience in childbirth. And let me be very honest with you, nor do I ever want to. Having now seen that two times, I don't want to know what it's like. Uh, women talk about the joy of, of you know, carrying that child so close for those 40 weeks and, and, and the elation of finally holding that baby to your chest. And I say, God bless you. And no thank you. <laughs> well, we're continuing in this series we started last week called Isaiah's Jesus. Looking at the picture that Isaiah gives us of this coming rescuer, this coming Messiah that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, of this rescuer who would come and fix what had been broken between us and God by sin. And particularly, the picture that we get from the passage in Isaiah we've been looking at, particularly the picture of his coming, what his coming would be like in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we read these words, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And each week leading up to Christmas, we, we are zooming in on one of those five descriptions in order to help us understand, just to fill up our hearts with wonder, as well as truth from God's Word about what this Jesus who came as a baby, what he would be like and what he is still like. Last Sunday, we began with Isaiah's first description of Jesus as a child. This coming Messiah would be a child. He'd be a son. And we talked about how ultimately this was a description of Jesus' true humanity, that he was truly man, that he wasn't simply God with us. He was God with us. 
was fully God and fully man. Two natures existing at the same time in one person. And yes, we said, I don't know how that is. We just know that it is. The Bible says it is. So, the whole reason we said last week that Jesus had to do that, had to come as a fully human, it was because he had to die. That was the ultimate reason. He came as a man because he had to die in our place. And we also saw that he, he basically uh, uh, showed us in his resurrection from the dead, he showed us God's desire also to restore humanity through that. This next description that we look at today now is a picture of this coming Messiah, that Jesus will be a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor, and Isaiah says it this way, as we read here, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor. Now, this second description from Isaiah actually builds fully out of what we said last week about Jesus being fully God and fully man. If you weren't with us last Sunday, I'm going to encourage you to go back this week and listen to that first message, because a lot of what we're going to say today builds out of that and actually for the rest of our time is going to build out of that there's going to be a lot of kind of huh moments if you haven't heard what we're talking about and i just can't lay the same foundation every sunday so go back catch up and you'll be good for the rest of the series but here's the big idea along with taking on humanity so that he could truly die in our place as well as showing us god's desire to restore humanity there's one other thing among many but one other thing that jesus achieves in his being truly human do you know what it is Experience. Jesus achieves in his humanity firsthand on the ground experience of all that we know as human beings. From, from being in the womb to growing up to scraping your knee to growing up into manhood, he experiences humanity in its fullness. Now we're going to flesh that out a lot more this morning, but big picture, I'm saying Jesus' humanity, Jesus being that child son of Isaiah's picture is key for understanding him now as our wonderful counselor. And so we're going to look at our passage today. I just want to divide it into two parts as we consider Jesus being fully man, fully God. So we're going to look at our passage today in these two ways. Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And then secondly, Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Our wonderful counselor and Jesus as our wonderful counselor. If English is not your first language and you think, oh, didn't you just say the same thing twice? I'm emphasizing each one, talking about how Jesus is our counselor and about how wonderful he is at doing that. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to, I, to Hebrews chapter 4? We're skipping from Isaiah to Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 12 there. We'll dig into this together. Let's look first of all at Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Our wonderful counselor. Now, for a lot of us, when we first hear that word counselor, our mind immediately goes to a picture of a professional counselor, a therapist, right? We, we think of uh, uh, somebody who's, you're lying on a couch there talking about your struggles, your difficulties, how you used to light things on fire as a kid, and whatever, things that you experienced as a child, maybe. And this person is now sitting there, they're listening to you, they're taking notes, and, and they're offering you counsel. Now, the word counselor in English actually has a number of different meanings. It's sense in the Hebrew from Isaiah's picture. It's actually very close to that idea of someone who offers wise counsel to you in your, when you come to them with difficult situations. And yet, out of that same word, we also get the word to console, 
to console. So we're talking about the idea of consoling someone, comforting them in their suffering and their grief, which actually very much still matches the picture of who Jesus is. And then even further, some of you may hear a counselor and your mind goes to someone who is a trial lawyer. That person is sometimes referred to as a counselor and they are advocating on behalf of somebody else in a, in a courtroom. Now, that's not exactly in line with primarily what Isaiah's picture of the word counselor, but I think it still fits very much our picture of who Jesus is and who he came to be. So if we roll all those three descriptions into one picture of someone who offers wise counsel, someone who consoles people in their grief, and somebody who advocates on behalf of another, I think you get a good picture of what Isaiah is trying to show us when he calls Jesus our wonderful counselor. That's what he means by that. And in Isaiah's day and age, as well as in Jesus' day, a full 700 years later, the only person that you would find who actually met all those three descriptions would be a high priest. A high priest of the day would be someone who embodied all three of those type of descriptions. He would have been someone who offered wise counsel from God's word uh, on how to live your life. He would have been someone who was an advocate between you and God, someone who was a mediator between you and God as he offered sacrifices for your sins. And then in doing that, he would also offer consolation. Consolation for your grief, your shame, your your guilt as he pronounced God's absolution over you. His forgiveness of your sins because now a substitute had been offered in place of those things. And if you look in our passage here, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the author of Hebrews gives us actually a really helpful list quickly of what the qualifications need to be for a high priest, what you need in order to be a high priest at all. Look first of all at verse 1. He says, in order to be a high priest, you have to be selected from among men. What that means is you have to be a human. Okay, so there can't be a, a, a high priest who's a monkey, a high priest who is a cow of some kind. It's got to be a human. And it's got to be someone, he says, who is willing to represent men and women before God by offering sacrifices for their sins. Verse 2 to 3 highlight the fact that he has to be empathetic. He has to be able to deal gently with those that he represents. And it says he can do that because he shares the same weakness as the people that he's offering sacrifices for. He has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well. Finally, verse 4, we see there he says, this is a role that you need to be called to by God. God has to call you specifically to be the high priest. You don't just show up one day, say, hi, I'm going to be your high priest today. Can you tell me where the fancy cloak and hat is? You, You have to be called by God appointed by him in order to do this. Now, in our passage that we looked at last week, chapter 2 and verse 17, we read that being made like his brothers in every way, in taking on humanity, Jesus became, it said, our merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And if you look at verse 5 of our passage here in chapter 5, we see that Jesus had also been called by God. God appointed him to this role of high priest. He didn't take it upon himself. He was obedient to take it on, but that being made like his brothers in every way piece, the humanity of Jesus' part, that's what I want to focus on particularly for a second here, because I think that's where we see the humanity of Jesus enables him to be our wonderful counselor. Because remember, one of the requirements of this high priest in this role was that he had to be empathetic. He had to be able to deal gently with those that they were representing, Now, last week in chapter 2 and verse 18, in Jesus' true humanity, we read these words, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, 
he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now look at verse 15 of chapter 4. Here we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So now we have two evidences right here in Hebrews telling us that Jesus meets that qualification perfectly. To be a high priest, to be empathetic and sympathetic, that's the word chapter, uh, uh, verse 15 says there. He can be sympathetic because he shares in the same weakness as those that he's representing. Namely, he, he has the same human flesh, he has the same human experience that we do. And maybe that's not surprising to you, to hear that Jesus gets an A on the high priest test. Maybe like, okay, great. But... To know that he has the qualifications to be a high priest, or in our sense, a counselor. We see that he meets all the qualifications, but what is surprising is that even though the Bible just said Jesus has that one qualification that we said you need in order to to choose somebody, to go to them to get counsel, to go to them to get advice in our need. He's got the experience. The Bible just said he has it. But the reality is that for most of us, we still don't go to Jesus in our times of temptation and failure. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because, like I said last week, we don't believe in the true humanity of Jesus. We practice that kind of functional docetism, which we said was basically like seeing Jesus as a superman. He looks human. He looks just like everyone, but he's actually not touched by anything. He doesn't really suffer. We often look at Jesus that way. But even if you were here last week and you you agree, okay, yes, he had to be fully human because he had to die. There's not anybody in here, I don't think, who at least at some point hasn't read these words that we just read. He was tempted in every way as we are and, and yet still thought, yeah, but not every way. He hasn't, hasn't been tempted in, in this way like I'm struggling with right now, of course. And I'm telling you, whenever you do that, you are denying the true humanity of Jesus. What you're saying is actually he's not fit. He's not fit to be a high priest or our counselor because he doesn't really meet the qualifications because his experience of humanity isn't really true. And I think we do that for a large part because we look at verse 15 there where it says that he struggled all these, all these ways. He experienced, he was tempted in every way, but he did it without sin. And as soon as we hear that, we kind of just push him off to the side and be like, okay, well, I can't do that without sin, so clearly... Uh, He didn't suffer the same way I did. You see the problem with that? (laughs) It says he was able to do it without sin. It doesn't say that he didn't suffer in the same way as us. It says he suffered in every way. And what I'm saying is because that's what many of us actually believe about Jesus, that he didn't really experience what we do, that's why we don't go to him in our temptations. That's why we don't trust him with our difficulties and failures. While we don't seek his consoling or his counseling, we don't think he really knows. We don't think he really knows. And yet, honestly, just, I'm just going to give you a quick flyover right now of Jesus' life, just to give you a picture of, of just how different and how true his experience really was. Jesus knows, for instance, what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend just like us. Jesus knows what it's like to face the fear of death, just like we do. He knows what it's like to be tempted to quit, to throw in the towel when things get really hard. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry, to be tired, 
to be poor, to be homeless. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated without cause and falsely accused by people. Listen, Jesus even knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God the Father. He knows what it's like to have God say no to a prayer. He's experienced all those things and more. And what's amazing to see is that Jesus takes on those experiences knowingly and willingly. Remember I said, I have no desire to experience pregnancy and childbirth because it looks really hard and bad. Jesus knows how bad it's going to be and he still comes and takes it on so that he can be our faithful high priest, so he can be our wonderful counselor. He does it willingly and knowingly. Tim Keller tells a story of a man in his congregation from years ago when he was a pastor in Virginia, of a man who was an x-ray technician. And he said that one day he had a kidney stone and he had to go into that same hospital now and be treated by his very staff. And he said, just that experience of being on the table, it totally changed the way that he operated from that point on. Because he said, I realized just how uncomfortable, how, how uh, uh, painful, how, how brusque everyone, how everyone was hurrying me along. And I was in pain. I couldn't twist like that. And here they're forcing me to do it. He says, I, I, I realized from that point on I'm never going to be as impatient as I was. I'm never going to be as brusque as I was because now I can sympathize. Now I know what it's like. What we're seeing here is that in the very same way, Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are. And actually probably in lots of other ways that we never have been. He suffered just like us. And he experienced weakness just like us. Jesus has been on the table. He's been on the table before, and that's why, that's why our wonderful counselor can say to us, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I know what that feels like. Come to me, and I will give you rest. That's why uh, the author of Hebrews can tell us in verse 16, look there with me, chapter 4, verse 16, he can tell us to come confidently before the throne of grace, trusting that rather than condemnation, we'll find mercy, rather than getting a lecture, We'll find grace to help in a time of need. He says we can do that because our wonderful counselor has had the same firsthand experience that we have, and he knows. He knows what it feels like. I can tell you, in some of the really difficult experiences that Sarah and I have gone through in our life, belief in that truth that he really knows has been an incredible comfort to us because it's reminded us to run to him. We can go to him because he actually knows what he's talking about. And he can offer us that grace and help in our time of need. So that's my prayer for all of us. Won't, won't you come to him today? Won't you come to him today with whatever it is that you're struggling with? With whatever your hurt is, the temptation, the difficulties, the stress, whatever it is. Trusting that he knows. He understands exactly what you're feeling right now. And he'll deal sympathetically with you. He'll be deal gently with you and offer words of counseling and consoling because he's been on the table. I pray that you would do that. I pray that I would do that, that we would all do that because we all know that when we don't go to Jesus with those things, we always go somewhere, don't we? Or to someone or to something. And very often that thing that, or that person that we go to is we go into ourselves. We go into ourselves and I think the reason we do that is because Living in a place like Vancouver, 
or just all of us who use social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, when you look around, doesn't everyone just seem like they're doing awesome? Everyone's okay. They're doing just fine. And, and, and there's no way you could share these things with anyone else because they don't, they don't know, they don't understand what you're experiencing. So I can't share this with anybody. I've got, I guess all I can do is go in on myself. And I promise you, you, you post a, a stack of bills, a picture of a stack of bills, and say, still can't find work. Put that on your Facebook and see how many likes you get. Post a picture on Instagram of a cupboard full of medications and say, praying, but still not healed. I need this to survive, to make it through every day still. See how many hearts that you get on your Instagram feed. You won't get it. In some ways, people don't even want you to put that. They don't want to see the true picture. We want the false picture. And so what do we do? We posture. We hide. We, we, we manage and we medicate our grief. And then we post another inspirational quote just so that everyone else will be fooled. They won't know that we're suffering. And it's in that place. It's in that place where we are just desperate for comfort and consolation, but we're unable to truly find it anywhere that we see now in our passage. Jesus isn't just our wonderful counselor. He's also our wonderful counselor. He's our wonderful counselor. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let's look now at Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Now, I realize that wonderful, maybe that's not a word that we hear a lot very much anymore. I know that's not a word I use very much in my own language, but if you break, it's a compound word. If we just break it down into its two parts, it's an adjective describing something as being full of wonder, as, as incomprehensible to our minds. So how is, it, how is Jesus' counseling of us full of wonder? How is it incomprehensible to us? Well, I think you see that if you look back at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Look there with me. Here we read this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now there's a great deal of debate among scholars about to what or to whom that word of God is referring is it talking specifically about the Bible, the, the written Word of God? Or is it talking about Jesus as the Word of God incarnate, like John uh, chapter 1 talks, the Word of God made flesh? Which one is it? Uh, I'm not here to solve that uh, debate for you this morning. Um, there, there's strong arguments on both sides. Uh, in one sense, because he's a person, it's easier for us to think of Jesus as someone who's living and active. Uh, uh, not to mention the fact that the majority of the book of Hebrews centers around the person and work of Jesus. It's comparing him to all kinds of different things. It's all about him. So it's easy for us to see that. And yet, if you read your Bible a lot, you know there's all kinds of places as well where God's words, written or spoken, are personified and said to be accomplishing things. Uh, uh, Isaiah 55 is a classic example of that. We read this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes from my mouth be. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay? Or even if you know Ephesians 6, it talks about the written word of God as being like a sword 
just like our passage here describes. So in a sense, I'm going to kind of land somewhere in the middle. I'm going to say it's both. It could be both. Now, I lean more towards the side of it describing Jesus, okay, so just for all the reasons that I mentioned, as well as the fact that if you look at verse 13, it says there at the end about uh, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we give account. Most of the New Testament refers to Jesus as the one through whom God will judge the earth one day. He is the one to whom we must one day give an account. So that's why I see this. I lean towards the side of this referring to Jesus. But considering what we just looked at as far as Jesus' counseling of us, his experiential knowledge of our sufferings and temptations, I think the ability that we see Jesus having in these verses is what makes him truly wonderful. Look again at verse 12 and 13. It speaks of Jesus having this piercing, penetrating power that can go through anything right down to the core of us. And it says that he's able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, almost as a byproduct of that penetrating power, that piercing sight that he has. Verse 13 tells us that nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. That sounds very much like Psalm 139. Where can I go from you? I go up to the mountain, you're there. I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. You're everywhere. It says that everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. That word laid bare or trashalizo in the Greek is very interesting. It actually is used to describe a wrestling move where someone's neck is bent back. Or it also can be used to describe someone who is forced into a position of being prostrate on the ground. So the idea being that we are just utterly subdued. We are totally defenseless from this sight that God has. Some translations even talk about being naked and exposed before him to whom we must give an account. He sees all. And actually, when we see Jesus doing this all through his earthly ministry, don't we? There's times all through the Gospels where we read things like, and Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, or Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, asked them, why are you thinking such things? I mean, can you imagine how unnerving that would be? How, how exposed you'd feel you're talking to Jesus and you're thinking something and he stops you and he's like, why are you thinking that? You just, uh, uh, I, did, was I? I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a counselor or a therapist before, but I'll tell you, they would give their right arm for an ability like that. You imagine how fast counseling sessions would go? You come in, you start telling them what the problem is. They're like, no, 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 that's actually not your problem. I can see actually what your problem is this. We work on this. You're actually going to be totally better. That'll be $300. Whatever. They would, they would love to have this ability. I mean, it's, it's exactly... It's just it's saying that Jesus can look into our hearts and our minds and see exactly what the problem is and diagnose it perfectly. He can see perfectly right to the depths of us uh, uh, and he can know exactly what the problem is. He sees our deepest, most hidden areas, all the things we don't want anyone else to see. He sees them. But what makes Jesus such a wonderful counselor is that even though he sees all that, even though he sees all the hidden parts that we don't let anyone see, he sees our brokenness, he sees our addictions, our rebellion, our lying, our sickness. He sees all that, and yet it doesn't stop him. He doesn't turn away from us, he turns to us. And he comes to us, and he enters into creation to experience all that we do to be our merciful high priest. And he can do that. He can turn towards us and come to us still, even seeing all the brokenness, because he's been on the table. 
He knows what you're experiencing right now. He knows how you're suffering, and so he's able to still deal gently with you. But when you consider what I just said a few minutes ago about that way that we don't like people to see those areas, we want to hide them away, we want to look like we're okay just like everyone else seems to be. One of the sad realities is that Jesus' perfect, wonderful knowledge of us is also one of the other reasons that we don't come to him. We don't come to him on the one hand because we don't think he really knows. We don't think he's really experienced what we have. And on the other hand, we don't come to him because we know he knows. And he's not going to look away from it. He's not going to pretend it's not there like we want to. He's going to focus on it and be like, no, I I see this is hurting you. I see this is killing you and I want to come and help you right now. And that's one of the reasons we don't want to come to him. And although it sounds crazy to say it out loud, even though we know what we're hiding is trying to kill us, we still don't want to come to the wonderful counselor. And I think the reason is, is because we, even though we know he's coming with forgiveness, his forgiveness is free, his acceptance of us has been paid for on the cross, what we know still, though, is that repentance reconciliation, sanctification, all that, that hard work that comes after that, that's hard. that's hard to do. That's really hard to go through. And so if we're honest, sometimes it feels easier to stay broken than it does to work towards healing. And the reality is, too, that piercing sword, it hurts. Even as it's healing us, that piercing sword hurts, and there's not one of us that easily submits to it. There's a a powerful story in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, about this uh, really horrible little kid named Eustace, who uh, one day finds this great fortune and treasure, and he embraces it, and he loves it so much. It's his security, and it's his hope, and one night he falls asleep on it, and when he wakes up in the morning, he discovers that he's been turned into a dragon. Isn't that the way that sometimes we become very much like what we worship? He's turned into this dragon, but now he realizes everyone's going to be terrified of me. I'm going to be alone now because no one will come near me because I'm this horrible dragon. So he tries to pull off the dragon skin with his big dragon claws. He, he tears at it and rips it, but every time he gets a layer off, there's just another layer underneath. And isn't that our experience as well, as we try to dig ourselves out from our grief, from our struggles, from our temptations? It's an endless finding of another layer. We can never truly be free from it. And in despair, he begins to weep. He just gives up. And it's then that Aslan the lion, who is the the Christ figure in these books, he comes to finally rescue his friend. He comes with his piercing sword, He can see the scared little boy perfectly that's hidden inside that terrifying dragon. And then we read this. You will have to let me undress you, said Aslan. So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. There's that laid bare before the eyes of him we must give an account to. Laying anxiously on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. And now he gives this description. Sorry. 
the very first tear that he made was so deep. I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. And when he peeled that beastly stuff off, just as I thought I'd done the other three times and hadn't, there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft and peeled as a switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that, for I was very tender underneath now, for I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And, that, and then it, after that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing around, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and I saw why. I had turned into a little boy again. Our wonderful counselor, he, he promises a surgical precision as well as a hard-fought empathy and care as he seeks to heal what's broken in each of us. But it doesn't mean he doesn't promise it's not going to hurt. He doesn't promise it won't be hard. He promises to be with us. And I can say to you, because I have also experienced some of these devastating times in my own life, that just because your circumstances hurt, just because they're painful right now, doesn't mean he isn't helping you. Doesn't mean he's forgotten and abandoned you. Look at verse 14 of our passage here. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That faith is ever and always only of our utter dependence on Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest and our wonderful counselor. It's only because of him that we can actually even do what verse 16 tells us, to come confidently before the throne of grace, to approach and draw near, trusting that we'll find mercy and grace. It's only because of him. We dare not try to do that on our own and still receive the same things. Jesus, as fully man, is our atoning sacrifice. And as fully God, he's our perfect sacrifice. Jesus, as fully man, understands exactly how you are hurting and suffering today. With temptation, with grief, he's been on the table. He knows. And yet as fully God, he clearly sees right past all the masks and the walls that you put up to try to hide those deep places you don't want anyone to see or touch. He sees right inside, and he offers that penetrating sword that truly heals, even as it exposes. As fully man, Jesus is our wonderful counselor who knows our griefs and infirmities firsthand. As fully God, he's our wonderful counselor who sees and also heals. And it's incomprehensible for us to understand how. The glory and hope of the gospel is that even though he sees he does not condemn. He looks at all those hidden dark places and says, neither do I condemn you. Even though he sees and knows each and every one of our failings and griefs, he still implores us, come to me. Come to the throne of grace and you will receive help in your time of need. He can do that 
Because although Jesus was made like his brothers in every way, and he was tempted in every way as we are, he was tempted in one way, and he experienced his humanity in one way that now we never have to because of him. And what that was is experiencing the wrath of God against sin. In Jesus' humanity as well as his divinity, he experienced God's full wrath poured out against sin on himself. He drank that cup that he asked could be taken from him in the garden. He drank it down to the last drop so that we would never have to experience that ourselves. So that would never be our human experience. This is the unmerited grace of God in Jesus. This is the full humanity as well as deity of Jesus accomplishing your salvation. This is Jesus, our wonderful counselor, one who fully sees and yet one who is also merciful because he fully knows. Let's pray. I would ask those of you who are helping to serve communion if you could come forward. God, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. We didn't know We didn't really believe that you knew what it was like. And there will be times still again when we don't really trust that you know. Would you help us to come to you? Help us to come confidently and boldly to you in our time of need to find help, trusting that you know and trusting that you will receive us, not because we deserve it, but because Christ has earned our deservingness. And now it's ours always and wherever, whenever we need it. Thank you for being our wonderful counselor. Thank you for seeing all our brokenness and still coming and taking it on. May we come to you ever and always as that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.